Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 12. The Patronus. Harry knew that Hermione had meant well, but that didn't stop him being angry with her. He had been the owner of the best broom in the world for a few short hours, and now, because of her interference, he didn't know whether he would ever see it again. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper, we're doing my hometown show tonight. What should I wear? To be cool enough for LA? Yeah. I don't think you own anything. Oh boy. Naked it is. <laughs> we still have a few tickets left, so you can even come and buy tickets at the door. It's 7 o'clock tonight at Emmanuel Presbyterian downtown. You get to meet my mom, my dad, my brothers, my brother's wife. She's going to be there? Oh, sign me up. Can I get tickets at the door? I can. Okay, amazing. <laughs> you, Casper, are already going to be there. Well, I would come and see us just so I could meet Suzanne. 
She's great. Suzanne is great. I'm very lucky. So. so come see us tonight, friends. Hope to see you there. When I was a young climate activist, the big focus of my work was around the UN climate negotiations. And these were huge gatherings of thousands of people, representatives from different national governments, lots of lobbyists, lots of activists and campaigners. So that'd be like four or 5,000 people within a big arena. And I would be one of the hundreds of young people who was trying to push the negotiations forward, trying to increase the commitments that countries were making. And, you know, sometimes it would feel like what we were doing had no impact. People didn't really listen to us. We might be doing stunts for newspapers. And it felt like we got hardly any coverage. And I remember at one point sitting down for lunch and kind of just starting talking to this person next to me who turned out to be a negotiator for one of the national governments. And I said something like, you know, I don't even know why we're here. We're having no impact. And I remember so well what he said. He said, it's so important that young people are here because you remind us of why we're having these conversations about carbon budgets in the first place. But secondly, you make us believe that it's possible. And I suddenly realized that as a young person who had hope and who was optimistic, we were extending what everyone else thought was possible just by our sheer naivete and overconfidence. And that actually we spoke to a piece inside these civil servants and these politicians that maybe they couldn't really release, but that by having it reflected in young people around them, they could be more optimistic about what was possible together. Yeah, I think optimism is contagious in that way, and importantly so, so that we can inspire ourselves to be optimistic, not just for ourselves, but for one another. Yeah, it stretches what's possible. That's the thing that really sticks with me, that if you don't have someone who's optimistic in a room, you're missing out on what could happen. Right. You won't. I mean, you won't try. Exactly. Exactly. And I think we really see that in this chapter in the history of magic classroom. I feel like Harry and Lupin almost take turns being optimistic. Right. And if they both drop that optimism at the same time, they would just call it quits. Right. They wouldn't show up again the next week. Yeah. Exactly. And look how this book ends and how important these lessons are. But before we get to the end of the book, let's dig into this chapter. And it's time for our 30-second recap. I believe it's your turn to go first, Vanessa. So here we go. Three, two, one, go. Ron and Harry are really mad at Hermione because Hermione told McGonagall that he got a firebolt and she's worried that Sirius sent him the firebolt. That was really hard for me to say. And then they, um, Lupin starts teaching Harry <clears throat> about... Um, how to cast a Patronus, and he's practicing and he's getting better at it. And then at the very end of the chapter, McGonagall gives Harry back his firebolt because it's safe and that's fine. And then they go to make up with Hermione. And then Ron goes upstairs to get rat tonic, and it turns out that Scabbers is gone and they blame Hermione. That was not my best. I felt like you were attacked by a sort of rat in your throat. <laughs> I was. I got a little... <clears throat> a little verklempt. I got a little verklempt about the whole thing. I was like, poor Hermione. It was very emotional. <laughs> it was. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so um, one of the things that's really important here is that Harry, while he's practicing to get the Dementor, like it doesn't work, he's screaming. And then for the first time, he hears his dad's voice, which I just, I was so sad and beautiful. Um, but he's like, all he can do is get a wisp. And so he's like, oh, I'm going to be okay on the battlefield. I mean, the Quidditch pitch, but it doesn't quite go well, but it's okay. Um, and he gets lots of chocolate from Lupin because Lupin's nice. And um, then, yeah, it's very scary because Scabbers is gone and there's blood everywhere. And Hermione and Ron at each other's throats. 
So the Quidditch pitch is a battlefield, but also love is a battlefield. Oh, that's what I meant. Now that we have quoted Pat Benatar, should we start talking a little bit about optimism? Where would you like to start this week's theme conversation? I want to start on the battlefield. Oh. Yeah. I want to start on the Quidditch pitch because the first place that I really saw this theme of optimism actually was a lack of it. Because at the very beginning of the chapter, Oliver Wood comes up to Harry and basically is like, oh, did you have a good Christmas? And then he's like, "Um, I've been doing some thinking, Harry. And basically after the last match when you had your like Dementor episode, I mean, we can't afford you to, well, dot, 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 dot. And he's basically willing to to kick Harry off the team. Like, this is serious business. Until Harry quickly says, Professor Lupin said he'd train me to ward the Dementors off. And what was so interesting to me is that he does a 180 turnaround. Suddenly he becomes super optimistic and says, well, in that case, I really didn't want to lose you as a seeker. Now we're going to win the World Cup. So it just was interesting to me to see how something like optimism or pessimism can switch in an instant And how much it affects the people around you, you know, which I talked a little bit about in my story. But I think this is a nice concrete moment where Wood's pessimism is about to, like, kick Harry off the team. So I don't know. It just really matters what kind of perspective you have. If you're optimistic, it's going to influence people around you. Oh, absolutely. It's like if you're not optimistic, I feel like very quickly you can be like, well, why bother? It's not going to work out anyway. And then you're not taking risks. Right. So, yeah, I absolutely see that. I cannot believe that Wood is about to kick Harry off the team, especially because this isn't just a lack of optimism in Harry's ability to ward off Dementors. It's a lack of optimism that Dumbledore has dealt with the Dementor situation properly. It is a lack of optimism in the leadership at Hogwarts and that, like, Madam Hooch would let it happen again and McGonagall would let it, Like, he has no faith in anybody if he's willing to kick Harry off the team for this. Well, and he would really miss out because Harry gets the firebolt. They win the match in this incredible way later on. So, yeah, that really struck me. I think the firebolt in general creates a lot of optimism and then obviously a lot of angst. But Wood gets even more excited when Harry shares the news. He's like, and I got a fireball over Christmas. And Wood immediately is like, it's the best thing that he has ever heard in the history of his life. I really think that if Wood found out that cancer was cured, he'd be like, yeah, but Harry got a fireball. (laughs) But what's so interesting about this in terms of, again, like Wood's optimism is that he so deeply wants to get the firebolt back because McGonagall has it because Hermione told McGonagall that Harry got the firebolt mysteriously, right? And so Wood thinks that he can talk McGonagall into just giving him the firebolt. Well, I think this is one of those cases where there's this idea that good news leads to optimism or to false confidence in some ways. It even says about Harry, like after he receives the firebolt, it says his heart was lighter than it had been in a month. And then, because Ron and Hermione have been in this awkward tension, he says, you know, we should make it up with Hermione. She was only trying to help. So like suddenly the problems which seemed insurmountable now are like, hey, we should just talk about it. It's going to be fine. So I think there's something about this, you know, I talk about like you can have a doom spiral when everything is going bad, but like here's like a happy spiral. Right, right? a virtuous cycle. A virtuous cycle, yeah, or not. It's more like a possibility cycle. Like they're optimistic, so it all seems very doable. 
I mean, it also just makes me wonder about I, I've always valued optimism. And I'm wondering if there's a time and a place for optimism. And then there's a time when optimism isn't helpful because you should actually be a little bit scared. I'm worried that optimism might be getting people into some really difficult moments or some situations that they shouldn't get themselves into. I see exactly that happen when Lupin and Harry are preparing to produce a Patronus. Because Lupin is a little bit overly optimistic, I would say, that dealing with a Bogart who is in the shape of a Dementor, and Harry can barely keep the thing off him. You know, he's not producing a full Patronus yet. It's this kind of wisp of smoke, and he can hear the screaming of his dying parents in the background. So he is not even ready to deal with one Dementor. And Lupin is like, oh, yeah, the multiple Dementors that could come onto the field, you'll be okay. Is he trying to inspire confidence so that Harry feels good and is not going to be crippled by fear? Or is he overly optimistic and should have been more honest with Harry? Well, I think he's even overly optimistic in having Harry practice with a Bogart Mm. because you can cast a Patronus without a Dementor. As we see later. So why isn't he just having Harry practice casting a Patronus first and then being like, okay, now you can cast a Patronus. Now I'll let the Bogart out and let's see what you can do. I feel like exactly what you're saying. I think it ends up really haunting him. And there is just no reason for the lesson to start at this highly rigorous level. I had never thought about that. Yeah. Bogart weirds me out in general. I don't understand how a Bogart so thoroughly turns into a Dementor that it can actually suck out your happiness. Why is it working as a Dementor? It's fake. Yeah, but it's magic. (laughs) Well, okay, but let's dig into this. We're trying to do sacred reading. So, okay, here's a difficulty in the plot. What can we make of that? I think in some ways it speaks to me that a thing doesn't have to be real to be frightening. And we can have traumatic experiences or be re-traumatized or feel like we're going through a painful experience just by seeing a picture or having a memory Nearly 10 years ago, I had this horrible accident where I fell from like 20 feet and broke both my ankles. I'm just even thinking about it right now, and I get clammy hands. I think that you're right, that it's possible that the Bogart has this power just by taking the shape of a Dementor. Yeah. And that could be why also at the end of the chapter, even though Harry is stuffed full of chocolate, he still doesn't feel good. And I wonder if that's because he's interacting with a Bogart as a Dementor and not an actual Dementor. Right, because it's much more about him and his memory and his own experience. It's not actually about an interaction with a Dementor itself. There is something beautifully optimistic about a Patronus, though, right? Even just the spell that you have to cast, expecto Patronum. I mean, the word expect, I feel like there's something optimistic and hopeful in an expectation. Yeah, it speaks to this kind of trusting, faithful, that something is going to happen beyond even your own ability in some way. The thing that I was thinking about when Harry is learning to cast a Patronus with Lupin, and it really relates to this idea of expecting versus creating in a way, because the first memory that he tries to conjure up is about flying on the broomstick. It's his first time in the air and he feels this freedom, but it's still a little bit about his own achievement and success. Like, look how good I am. And the second one is like when they win the House Cup. Again, this moment of we've really done this together and I've succeeded in some way. But the third time is when he learns that he's going to Hogwarts. And that's the time when he manages to conjure up a Patronus or at least a wisp of one. And it struck me just that that third memory, that's really a gift. 
this idea of, you know, he's welcomed into the wizarding world. There's something more than his existence in Privet Drive. I don't know. I just thought that was a nice kind of example of grace, which to me connects somehow to this idea of expecting something that's beyond your own ability and success. Well, it was a moment of optimism that he is recalling. What was interesting to me about that memory is that nothing happy happened. Mm. It was, I might get out of this house. I feel like Hagrid gives Harry the option for optimism. And that is what Harry remembers. And that is what makes him happy. And not just the option for optimism, but he kind of confirms any optimism that Harry's ever had. Any slight dream that Harry had of, I don't belong here, I belong somewhere else, or one day I'll get out of here. You know, all of that is being affirmed. And he's being proved right. You should be optimistic. But I wonder if the reason that it's a wisp and not a full-fledged Patronus is because it's not the moment that he gets sorted into Gryffindor. It's not the moment that he meets Ron. It's not the first time he sees Hogwarts. It's just an idea. It's just a moment of optimism, right? So I feel like it's also saying that optimism is wonderful, but it's the actual connections that get made to other people and other places that really create happiness. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. 
MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Vanessa, where else in this chapter did you think about optimism? So this is actually a moment when I think optimism hurts. So... Ron and Harry, really Harry technically, but Ron feels it too, they get the firebolt back from McGonagall. And because they get the firebolt back, they have this moment of optimism and like good energy that you had talked about of reaching out to Hermione. They're like, okay, maybe it's time we forgive Hermione. But because it's just based on this like good feeling and not based on a real reason, it just so quickly falls apart. There's something really fundamentally broken in Ron and Hermione's relationship right now. They are just not trusting each other. And Ron is really annoyed and frustrated by how Hermione can get to all these classes, which is a broken trust. And then Crookshanks and Scabbers' relationship is obviously a real sore point between the two of them. And so as soon as Ron goes upstairs and sees blood on the sheets and, you know, one of Crookshanks' hairs— He immediately is like, Hermione, we're fighting again. And I think this speaks to how optimism, if it brushes over the real issues, then you're not going to accomplish anything. Right. None of the fundamentals of the situation have changed. There's just like some more goodwill because of a change in circumstance. Sometimes that can lead to some productive conversation about the fundamentals, but they haven't been addressed. And now there's like this incendiary moment where suddenly it looks very, very bad. All the trust is gone again. It feels like optimism is not enough. It's not going to solve relational difficulties just to feel good. You have to address the real problems. You have to be hopeful that a good conversation can change things, but you can't just be hopeful that things will change. Right. Casper, this chapter, I mean, this is just one of the really heartbreaking Hermione moments, right? She's like officially falling under the weight of all of these books. Talk about over-optimism, thinking that she could pull off taking all of these classes. Oh, my God. And shame on McGonagall for supporting that. I mean, you were talking earlier about the optimism of children being infectious to older people. But to some extent, it's also up to older and more experienced people to be like, nope, this optimism is unfounded. You can't fly. But there are some times when, you know, you just have to learn for yourself. And I think McGonagall's like, listen, you're in your third year. If it really goes horribly wrong, it's still your third year, right? Like, you're going to be okay. If she doesn't learn the lesson that there are limits to any human capacity, she might keep pushing herself and, like, never take a vacation and always work through to midnight and be really unsustainable as she gets older. Okay, fine. But the really heartbreaking thing is that I don't know how you feel, but I absolutely feel like she did the right thing by telling McGonagall about the mysterious fireball, even though the boys are so mad at her. And yet she's the one slinking away. And I I don't know if she's hurt that they're mad. She's like, you guys don't even understand why I did this. If she's just wallowing in her loneliness or why she's not confronting them like you idiots I definitely did the right thing. 
Well, you know, what it really reminded me of is, you know, in Greek tragedies, you'll get a a foreteller or some sort of... An oracle. An oracle, right. Or like Cassandra in Agamemnon, you know, she predicts the curse and the bad omens that are coming and no one wants to listen to her. And I feel like sometimes maybe as a society or as a group of friends, we get caught up in optimism. You know, we're like, oh, look at this free gift, which I don't know where it came from or, you know, what it might do. But it's going to be great because it fits what I want to do with my life right now. And Hermione's like, no, this could be very, very dangerous. And of course, I think she's right. But sometimes it's really difficult to be that one person who stands up and says, like, hang on, we should be really careful here and to kind of burst that bubble. But the thing is, like, if you're going to be that voice, like, you have to be prepared to be ousted because no one wants to be shown the truth when you have a much brighter kind of gilded dream that you're living in as a society or as, or as a group. And I feel like she's not surprised by the boy's reaction. Mm. I, I feel like she has nothing to be ashamed of. And there's even that great moment in the chapter where Ron is saying, oh, Lupin looks sick. What do you suspect is wrong with him? Yes. And Hermione's like, what is wrong with you? How do you not have this figured out? Right. But like that is the only time she in any way tries to reach out to them. I mean, it's a moment where she can feel a little bit superior to them and like get that sense of self-respect back. But I don't know. It just breaks my heart that she doesn't go up to Harry and say like, Pardon me for loving you and, like, actually being worried about something that's more important than Quidditch. I think with that tone, she'd definitely get the answer she's looking for, Vanessa. <laughs> but I know that you're being sarcastic with me, but, like, something to snap him out of his pettiness. But I think that's what happens when you get groupthink, right? Like, anything that would try and snap you out of it is only going to strengthen your resolve to live in this dream or to live in this optimistic vision, which may be unfounded. You know, a kind of gently, gently approach might have been more effective here, but it might also just be impossible. And it just has to wait to resolve, either to get the firebolt back or to be like, yep, it was jinxed. Yeah. Oh, what an awful place to have to, like, hold space for. I guess on some level she's probably optimistic that the friendship will be repaired and is just giving them space to figure it out. That would be a very mature response. Which... No one would be surprised by our dear Hermione for being mature. Vanessa, it's time for us to dig into our spiritual practice. And this week, we're returning to sacred imagination. Mm. So I will read a little passage from the chapter. And remember, this is really about trying to embody ourselves into the text. So finding smells, sounds, texture, you know, what can you see? Really try and imagine yourself either as one of the characters in the text or a bystander who just is observing the whole scene. And I've chosen a scene where Professor Lupin and Harry are speaking. And Harry asks, what's under a Dementor's hood? Professor Lupin lowered his bottle thoughtfully. Hmm, well, the only people who really know are in no condition to tell us. You see, the Dementor only lowers its hood to use its last and worst weapon. What's that? They call it the Dementor's kiss, said Lupin, with a slightly twisted smile. It's what Dementors do to those they wish to destroy utterly. 
I suppose there must be some kind of mouth under there because they clamp their jaws upon the mouth of the victim and suck out its soul. Harry accidentally spat out a bit of butterbeer. What? They kill? Oh no, said Lupin. Much worse than that. You can exist without your soul, you know, as long as your brain and heart are still working, but you'll have no sense of self anymore, no memory, no anything. There's no chance at all of recovery. You'll just exist, an empty shell, and your soul is gone forever. Lost. Oof. So, Vanessa, what, what struck you in that passage? I mean, there's a lot of description of the Dementor, but where did you find yourself in that scene? I definitely found myself in Harry and receiving this information for the first time. Part of what's so interesting on a more cerebral level is that Harry is so scared of Dementors already, and he doesn't even know the worst thing about them. Mm. And I can imagine feeling like a rush of cold come over me as I learn about a soul being sucked out. And I also think that what's so upsetting about it is, I don't know, I was really disturbed by the fact that Lupin smiles. Mm. <laughs> like Harry watching Lupin give him this information and there's a line. Do you mind reading it again? It's like Lupin smiles a little bit. Yeah, they call it the Dementor's kiss, said Lupin with a slightly twisted smile. Yeah, if I was Harry, that would super disturb me. What about you, Casper? Maybe because I was reading, I kind of found myself as a third person or like a view outside of either of the characters. The thing that really struck me was the physicality of the Dementor's kiss, I guess. The fact that in my mind, they're always kind of like hovering towards you and then the Patronus comes, you know, like it's this spectral figure that comes close but never actually touches. And the way that in Lupin's description that they literally latch on and there's this like violent sucking of something, of a soul that comes out of a body, it's really twisted. They just seemed even more frightening. And particularly, I, th I think the reason maybe why Lupin is smiling is it's this horrible word of kiss, which should be something tender and loving and intimate, which becomes so violent. And I mean, for me, this is image of sexual assault, which is so, it's very graphic. I guess I had somehow forgotten that the Dementors are so violent in their physicality as well as their terror of, you know, just seeing them in a distance. Yeah. I wonder how much Lupin is a little bit making up the their jaw clamps down. Mm. Because again, nobody except a victim would really know that. And so it's... I've just had a brainwave. The imagery that he's using there is imagery of a werewolf. Mm. That's what happens as a werewolf clamps down, not on a mouth, but on a neck. Right. And so I'm wondering if he's projecting his own experience of, you know, an out-of-body or... Or, or a, a fear of what or he Or a fear do. of what, what could happen, that he's projecting that onto a Dementor. Yeah, because, I mean, he sets that up. He's like, none of us really know, except right. the ones who do know are in no position to tell us. So... I feel like, yeah, I think that you're exactly right. I mean, there's definitely some sort of projection or assumption happening. 
Right. And when he transforms into a werewolf, there's a loss of himself, right? Which is how he describes this loss of a soul. You have no sense of self, no memory, no anything. That's his experience of transformation against his will. You know, however he became a werewolf, that sense of self has been taken from him. So like, whoa, I'm just seeing so much about his own experience in this description of the Dementors. Well, Sue, and I wonder if Dementors are personal in that way. Harry hears his parents. Lupin sort of sees a werewolf. The Dementors are very much about like pulling out what's within you. And so I'm not sure that this is what a Dementors kiss actually is or if this is what Lupin assumes it to be. Vanessa, the other thing that I'm realizing, and this is just hearing myself say the word Dementors, it reminds me of dementia. And just the description here of your brain and heart still exist, but you have no sense of self, no memory, no anything. There's no chance of recovery. You just exist an empty shell. And just thinking about how, you know, our understanding of personality and a soul are so linked up with memory and identity. And when that slips away, like what remains, you know? So my grandfather has dementia. We're very lucky. He's 96 and we still have him. And mm. He flatters my mom because he always thinks, like, my mom and I are sisters or, you know, he, <laughs> he doesn't know who we are. He knows that he loves us. Mm. But what's interesting about the Dementor's Kiss is that it does leave you with a brain and a heart. It mm. just takes your soul. And at least symbolically, I feel like if you still have your heart, it calls me to question, like, what's a soul versus what's a heart versus what's in our minds. I don't know. I know I've talked about on the podcast before, like, Papa doesn't remember when we come to visit anymore. And I call him on Shabbat, and he talks to me for 30 seconds. And I'm like, well, was there any reason for me to do that? And yeah, I mean, the answer to all of these things is I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the fact that the brain and the heart remain, and that even if memory is gone, and even if, you know, hope of anything coming back is gone, the heart of, like tenderness can still be there, maybe. Maybe not for everyone, but there's a, just a hint of promise in that line, actually, which I hadn't seen before. Right. What if Hagrid had gotten the Dementor's kiss? Yeah. I don't know why, if it's because we're talking about optimism, but like, I just can't imagine a Dementor's kiss not leaving Hagrid still kind. He might not know who Harry and Ron and Hermione are. He might not have that memory and purpose, but... He's still going to cuddle little animals. Right? Like, if you put an animal in front of him, he's going to grab it and snuggle it. And I think, you know, Sirius, even though he's in the shadows throughout this whole chapter, like, there's a promise there, right? There's some optimism that, of course, it's through some magical means, right? Sirius can transform into a dog, but there is a way of escaping this. Like, there is a way of making it through. And it's with dogs. <laughs> it's with dogs. <laughs> Well, we'll close it there. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who have jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class, you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints, and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value, wonder, imagination, grief, and courage. If you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion, if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends, then this class is for you. Register before the first class on June 23rd by going to notsorryworks.com. That's N-O-T-S-O-R-R-Y-W-O-R-K-S dot com. Today's voicemail comes from Dave Lawson in Salford. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Casper. This is Dave from Salford, England. I love your podcast and I finally caught up with all your episodes. This is a really quick voicemail to point out something that occurred to me during a sacred analysis in the chapter on frustration. The passage Casper chose was, he's a complete lunatic, can't we get anyone else? And you both picked up on the word lunatic in the text. What struck me was the origin of the word lunatic comes from the word lunar and the popular belief that the phases of the moon drove people mad and changed them. There's a big parallel here. Who else did you describe as being frustrated? Severus Snape teaching the defense against the dark arts class about werewolves. And who else is affected and changed by the moon? Well, Remus Lupin, the subject of Snape's frustration. Now, imagine not Snape but Seamus talking to not Percy but Dumbledore about Lupin's appointment at the start of term. He's a complete lunatic, said Snape angrily to Dumbledore. Can't we get anyone else? And the answer is no, Snape. That job is cursed. You're going to have to stay frustrated. Thank you so much for sending that in, Dave. First of all, because hello, England. And I just think it's true that English people are more intelligent. (laughs) Dave, what your voicemail, I think, pointed out was the different parallels in relationships. Like there are these triads of complaint throughout our lives. And yeah, I, I really appreciate you calling our attention to the fact that these dynamics play out over and over again. The thing that I'm really left with, Dave, is that Snape not being given the cursed 
position is actually a really strategic move by Dumbledore. And I don't know if this is a nice thing to say, but maybe it's true that like sometimes you can't give people what they want for their own, you know, for their own self-interest in the long term, even if they don't know it. I don't know. That's helping me see like another level of Dumbledore's wisdom. And I think the parallel even goes a little bit further in that Seamus isn't crazy for complaining about Cadogan. And Snape's not crazy for being concerned about Lupin. Between him being a werewolf and Sirius being out on the loose and Sirius and Lupin's past relationship, like, neither of these complaints are unfounded. Just like Ariana complaining about you is not unfounded. (laughs) You cut me deep, Shrek. (laughs) Casper, we now have the opportunity to bless someone. Whom would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Harry. He is... So brave. You know, he he faints three times when he's trying to dispel the Dementor that comes in front of him. He is totally traumatized by hearing his parents' dying screams. To be so afraid and to get back up again and try again and be knocked down and try again and be knocked down and try again and ultimately be proved so victorious is so inspiring to me um, because sometimes it's easier just to stay down and that might be the right thing now and then but yeah blessing for anyone who's feels like they've been fighting this battle over and over again and they just have to get up again this blessing is for you how about you Vanessa who are you blessing this week so I have to bless Hermione this week And I feel like we could pick any number of moments. I mean, she's just so alone in this chapter. This is like pre-Ron and Harry coming into her life, Hermione. But what I really want to bless is the moment. There's like a nasty little moment that I think she turns it around, which is we talked a little bit about when, when Ron is like, Lupin still doesn't look well. What do you think is going on? And Hermione sort of makes a knowing like, like, I know. But she doesn't tell Lupin's secret. She is the only one who's figured out what is going on with Lupin. Even though she could use this as a way to one-up them in this moment, she's so alone. She's so sad. She's so overwhelmed by all of her work. And this could be a way to be like, come here, I'll tell you, right? She has some power. And I just think that in all of her loneliness and sadness that she doesn't betray Lupin is just... So beautiful. So I want to, yeah, just bless Hermione for that really beautiful moment of loyalty. And for someone who cares so much about knowledge, she doesn't care about it to wield power over others. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Catch us at our live show in LA tonight, 7 o'clock at Emmanuel Presbyterian, and on Thursday in San Francisco. You can buy your tickets at harrypottersacredtext.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those. You can send in a voicemail by sharing a story from your own experience, and we still need some help writing transcripts for season three, so please get in touch if you can lend us a hand. Next week, we will be joined by a very special guest, Hank Green, as we discuss Chapter 13, Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw, through the theme of rivalry. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nedelman, Casper Kyle, and Vanessa Sultan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week, we would like to thank Rebecca and Charlie Ledley and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Oi, Hermione, you weigh on my heart. 
There's blood on the carpet. It's on the sheets. It's on the sheets. I mean, the sheets, the carpet, the <laughs> curtains. I got them all done. This is why you put plastic over the sofa. That's right. In case someone gets the period, they don't I'm get blood on the you. couch. <laughs> okay. Okay. 